What's up, everybody? This is Axel Ragnarsson here, host of the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. Uh, you're probably wondering why you're not hearing Jerome's voice right now, um, considering you're on Jerome's podcast feed. But Jerome had this idea um, to start doing some podcast swaps with other podcast hosts, uh, basically um, putting an episode of his podcast on other people's feeds that uh, might value from his podcast and, and basically... Uh, taking one in return from folks that uh, have a similar podcast or similar audience uh, to his. So my podcast is focused on multifamily real estate. I speak with a number of investors um, at varying levels of success in the multifamily real estate business. Uh, We've done some really, really good high-level in-depth episodes um, with some of the best investors in the business. And what we try and do on my podcast feed is skip all of the early stage you know, kind of fluffy stuff and get really into the nitty gritty of how these real estate entrepreneurs built their business. And a lot of, you know, basically we try to get to the tactical and actionable items um, that they can provide listeners to help them grow their business. So the episode that you're about to hear is an episode I did with Harper Jones, who is a a young real estate investor based in Tennessee. Um, He's built a sizable portfolio in a very short amount of time. And we talk about his business and how he was able to grow a portfolio in his early 20s, um, mainly using other people's money. And uh, this is a really good episode, especially for those who are looking to learn more about creative financing, uh, finding off-market deals, and uh, networking. And you want to stick around to the end of the show where Harper shares a story um, about a property that, or a portfolio, I should say, a portfolio that he purchased using like numerous, numerous creative financing strategies. Um, it is a really, really interesting deal, and this is a really great episode. Uh, so I hope you enjoy, and hopefully, you know, it causes some of you guys to head over to my feed. Uh, again, Multifamily Wealth Podcast is the title of my pod. And uh, if you want to connect with me offline, I mean, outside of outside of the podcast feed, uh, look me up on Instagram at Multifamily Wealth. Try and help some help post some helpful content on there as much as I can. Excuse me. Um, or you can find me on LinkedIn, Axel Ragnarsson. Uh, not too many Axels floating around on LinkedIn, so you should be able to find me in a quick Google search. But thanks for your time. Hope you enjoy the episode, and hopefully, uh, hopefully I get to see some of you soon. Welcome to the Multifamily Wealth Podcast, where we talk about how to start, build, and scale your real estate business. Here is your host, Axel Ragnarsson. All right, welcome to another episode of the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. Uh, with me today is Harper Jones. How are we doing, man? Hey, doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Um, really looking forward to this conversation specifically because I think there's a lot of uh maybe stories in your background that will apply to where the listeners are. Um, a lot about being young, being in real estate and transitioning from, you know, doing single family deals, single family flips and wholesales into multifamily. Uh, I think that's a, you know, a point of uh, a lot of the listeners careers where they're trying to make that kind of distinction on what they want to do in the future. So um, I'll let you talk about your background for a bit though. You know, what were you doing maybe right before you got into real estate You know, why real estate and uh, what are you doing now within the business? Yeah, yeah, sure. So kind of the main, you know, work experience or career experience that that I was um, uh, getting into was uh, door-to-door sales back in uh, high school. I uh, had uh, someone who was a a manager at 
um, a door-to-door sales company or something like that at church. And uh, one of my buddies started working there. He was maybe this, you know, late twenties at the time. And so I asked him, I'm like, Hey, is there any way, you know, I can maybe go over there and start, you know, working. Um, Cause I, I thought it would be, you know, seemed like it would be decent pay. One, two, I would better my social skills and, you know, three sales skills. Right. So uh, I did that for a few years. Um, as I was doing that, I wanted to um, get some additional income. So I learned super basic, you know, programming, if you would even want to call it that, or basic code or whatever. Basically, I just uh, started learning how to uh, build simple websites. Um, and there's some more advanced things or I would have a buddy help me with it. And so I got, you know, two or three of those gigs and either on the second or third, I, I was trying to uh, get this guy I was playing Ultimate Frisbee with to, to do a website for his wholesaling company in real estate. And uh, turned out after maybe another month or two, we ended up partnering and, and started wholesaling. And then uh, from that, that was maybe about four years ago. Um, you know, I, I just uh, been in real estate ever since. And that's been my, uh, my main career. Awesome. No, that's, that's great. So let's talk about maybe, you know, your first, maybe your first deal, maybe your first strategy, you know, how, what did you actually do uh, when you decided you wanted to get into real estate investing? Um, and, uh, and how has that evolved over the last few years? Yeah, sure. So when I got started, I mean, I was pretty ignorant. Uh, and, you know, I'm still ignorant now. I mean, I'm always going to have stuff to learn. But we started following the, the typical processor protocol, seeing people that, you know, were making it happen in uh, the real estate realm within, you know, wholesaling or, or flipping and just tried to follow that framework. So we started doing, you know, the direct mail and uh, did a little bit of driving for dollars and just, you know, really any of these uh, different ways of marketing, I'm sure we'll get into the details for multifamily or whatever on, on uh, how to find deals, but they all work. It's just being consistent. And so, you know, we poured in a couple thousand dollars into marketing and, and a little system we could follow, you know, or whatever other, you know, call system like call rail, you know, so we had a little bit of overhead and uh, we were actually just handwriting uh, letters at first and then, you know, paid someone to help handwrite before, you know, outsourcing to uh, all these other companies that we started discovering, but, uh, it took us about two or three months to do our first deal. And, uh, so we got the deal. We, we, uh, uh double closed that one, but wholesaled it got, you know, maybe $3,000. So we broke even. So besides our time, we didn't make anything. Um, but a couple of months after that, we, we kept following up with this, uh, this one owner and, uh, he had a, a couple of properties, but one of which was a five unit and four unit. Uh, apartment complex. And as we had walked it, toured it, talked to him, um, we ended up landing on a price of 90 grand or 10 grand a door. And I, uh, maybe that's three and a half years ago or something like that, three years ago at the point that happened, which, you know, it was a pretty good deal. I didn't necessarily understand what we had at the time, how, how good of a deal it was because the rents were on the market and they're bringing in about three grand. And the place didn't need a ton of work. It really didn't. Um, and the area was you know, probably C plus all around, you know, and C plus, you know, unit class. So looking at now, after I've I've learned more, I would have just held that and, you know, refinanced it, um, you know, staying down all cash or, um, you know, bought it, gotten up to par and then then resold it. We would have had much more spread. But anyways, we'd sold it to this guy out of Nashville, Tennessee, because that nine unit was in Knoxville, Tennessee. And he came in and bought it, I think, for 145. 
so we had it for 90. Uh, we actually forgot the purchase and sale agreement when we were meeting at McDonald's. So we didn't want them to go with another buyer or something. So we had to said, look, we'll give you like 2,500. Uh, if you just, you know, wait here for an hour so we can go get the, uh, <laughs> and come back. So we lost out on 2,500 there, but it was, it was all right. So we go, um, get it signed. You know, we talk some buyers and, you know, we have a guy out of Nashville comes in, buys it. And, um, yeah, I, I, you know, check the tax records on stuff, but, uh, he, he actually, um, sold it. I, I think probably in the last six or eight months. And, uh, you know, he bought 145. I doubt he put more than 2025 in. I, I doubt it. Even if he put 50 in, let's say he's all in at 200. He's been cash flowing probably, you know, 30, 35% a year at least. Could he get his rents up to like 4,000? And he sold it for 300K. So he ended up making at least 100, 150. Well, we made some, some good money, 50, 52,000. But, uh, you know, just looking back, I see what we left on the table there when it was so easy to be able to you know, pay attention. Sorry, I got a train coming. Yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, we'll wait for that to pass by. But it's funny because it's funny you mentioned that you signed that at McDonald's because uh, I've done a couple of deals with a seller that I met through. Um, through some direct mail and, and we would basically, I bought his portfolio and over the course of, I think it was like nine months, I bought a building then three months later, he said he wanted to sell another one and we signed all the contracts at a Burger King. So it's like something about fast food restaurants, right? It's pretty, uh, pretty casual, but, um, it seems like that's the seller type, right? I'm sure you had a seller that was probably maybe like a mom and pop seller. And that was the best way to, uh, to establish some rapport is to meet at such a, such a simple place. Um, I haven't heard of someone putting down a, a deposit before the PNS though. That's pretty funny. You know, basically 2,500 getting paid $2,500 an hour to wait at a McDonald's isn't a bad gig for that seller. <laughs> no, no. So we, sorry, I'd sorry for any misunderstanding. We didn't give them 2,500 there. We just gave them, we, we made the contract 92.5 instead of 90,000. Gotcha. So we just gave them another 25 at close. Yeah, there you go. Um, so basically, I mean, the takeaway there was, uh, or at least maybe looking back, the takeaway is, you know, should have just held that one and refinanced and been in, been in it for for no money and, and cash flow pretty nicely. So I'm, I'm guessing that that that, that experience um, probably kind of pushed you towards the multifamily side of the business. Um, and maybe you can talk about uh, what your first, you know, deal was that, that wasn't an assignment in the multifamily space and, um, and how you actually kickstarted that piece of your business. Yeah, sure. So about a year after that nine unit situation, uh, during, you know, that whole time, you know, I'm in, I'm in college, uh, uh, during those years, but I, I was wholesaling primarily, uh, we were doing a handful of actual rehabs, but uh, we enjoyed wholesaling more. And then, so about a year, so the spring, of I think it was 2018, we had bought in April, we bought a seven unit, which was like a triplex and uh, four single family houses, a little small little storage shed. We ended up, you know, holding that for a few years and sold that this January. Uh, and then we bought a six unit a month after that, which was, uh, you know, a good part of town, you know, B class part of town, B class units, B, B minus. And uh, so we bought that uh, six unit, you know, fixed it up, got rents up and we actually sold that in um, December of last year. So not too long ago. And that, that was a good A to Z transaction. And then the fall of 2018, we bought a 35 unit. And that was um, one of the bigger things that, that we had done at the time. And so it was, you know, a, a great stretch for us to, to level up from the, you know, six unit, seven unit and some basic wholesaling stuff. 
So we had to, you know, round up about 700 grand, 500 for down payment since we were uh, buying it for, for 2 million. And uh, those, those were nice B-class units here, here in North Knoxville, uh, Tennessee. And uh, then we uh, had an additional 200K reserve account, you know, closing costs, uh, et cetera. So we ended up buying that. It, was, it wasn't technically a syndication. It was just a joint venture. Um, it was me and two partners at the time, Peter and Hunter. We were the, the managing people. And we had a few more um, uh, not as active investors or passive investors. Who, who would put in a capital as well. So maybe we put in, you know, 150 of it and they put in 550 of it. And then we, you know, structured the, the spreads and, and, and distribution very similar to how a typical, uh, you know, syndication or joint venture would be, would be split up. And we uh, sold that this January as well. So it's about a 14 ish month old. And that ended up being, being really good. I think we ended up getting a total deal return of like 60 ish percent or something. 60, 65% in the 14 month period. So, so that was great. And we learned a lot. Uh, so those were, um, uh, the first three, uh, we bought another 20 unit last August, uh, close to that 35 unit. And then we bought a, uh, we bought a whole portfolio from a guy and we ran it up about a million bucks. We had to do that. We did that all private money. So no bank, no, none of that. And our intention was to buy it and wholesale off. Uh, or flip off a lot of those multis and, and that uh, deal. And there's some single families, but um, of course the numbers didn't work out as, as well as we thought. Those are always tough when you try to take down a portfolio and assign or flip some off. Uh, I, I say just be much more conservative in your uh, underwriting with those because we didn't make nearly as much as we thought we were going to. No, that that's great. Um, and I want to dive into like three or four different things in what you just mentioned. Um, but I'm going to back all the way up to the beginning of, of, of maybe when you got started a little bit more seriously in multifamily, you're looking to buy and actually scale and, and be on the ownership side. Um, you know, so how did you actually go out and start sourcing these deals and, and generating leads? Um, you know, were you, were you marketing? Was this all kind of relationship based in terms of how you were actually meeting these sellers and getting these deals or, um, or was there some kind of paid marketing aspect to that? Yeah. So, our, our first venture in was that seven unit. The seven unit occurred by, we were sending direct mail and uh, doing maybe a few other forms of marketing uh, for wholesaling, right? Just trying to, you know, flip off some wholesale deals. And uh, I think uh, how it worked out is we sent a letter and instead of the sellers calling us, uh, one of their broker friends, like is just a broker had a relationship with the family and they're older. So he called, say hey, email about this house. You know, they, they don't want to sell that. Or we mailed about a house he had. He says, no, I don't want to sell that, but I do have some family friends that may want to sell this over here. And that's the seven unit we ended up buying. And uh, so that came from us trying to just wholesale in general, but it just came from talking to people. And one of the main things, there's something I'm real big on is relationships. So, I mean, even if you have someone call and say, I'm not interested in selling, it's like, well, why don't you just try to develop some rapport with them, get to know them some. And, you know, sometimes if they got, you know, different properties or they may have other, you know, friends or family or people that they want to sell, you know, just ask them, say, Hey, look, you know, do you know anyone else you'd want to sell? Or, you know, I'm happy to pay you a finder's fee if you, you know, um, have something that someone may want to sell or whatever that is. And just try to, you know, be genuine and authentic to people and just try to add people value no matter what, and, you know, it'll come back around and, and the uh, different opportunities will, you know, kind of fall on your lap, so to say. 
So that, that was the first seven unit. The six unit, uh, same thing. We, we just mailed letters. And I think we uh, were looking just for some uh, more multis, uh, like smaller, two to four to, you know, five, ten, whatever, uh, unit sizes so that we could wholesale those off. And because there you know, was a little bit more um, uh, spread on those, plus we had, uh, you know, specific buyers who were asking for it. And so we had a letter. Uh, our guy called back. And, um, it was a, uh, six unit and we ended up buying that. And, uh, that, that was pretty cool. The, the seller there was awesome. He was uh, in his nineties. And, um, so we, we went out and, you know, got dinner with him afterwards or lunch with him afterwards and, you know, followed up for a handful of months. He was, he was a really good, he was a real cool character. So that, that was the, the six units first two. And then when you get bigger, I say direct to seller is much harder. Uh, I'm going to circle back around to relationships uh, with the 35 unit we had, uh, it was, it was a broker who, who had the listing. Um, now I guess the term could be pocket listing before they go to market, but they already did their little package offering package. Now I started, I'm born and raised where I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee. So I, as I've been in real estate over the years, I've been trying to build good relationships with people in the real estate industry and just business and, and, and stuff in general. And so one of my uh, buddies, Scott, who's been a you know, mentor uh, to me and is a partner with me on different things, he had gotten the email. Well, he was one of the first people to get the initial email because maybe they sent it to 5, 10, 15, 20 people, whatever. And so what he did is he forwarded it over to me. Right. So we got it a day or two earlier than they sent it out before they're about to go list it. So that enabled us to act quickly and go be the first people to go see the property. And they were asking 1.95 million. And we came in and offered, you know, a full price right away. So instead of trying to get a little bit better deal, when it would be a hot deal, we kind of had that gut feeling when we got there, we knew the numbers would work. So we ended up offering uh, the full price um, basically that evening. So within like a couple of hours of us walking, you know, maybe a unit or two and then outside. And um, then we had uh, two more offers came in or three more at asking. And then one was above asking. So we had to um, come back and, you know, we needed to, you know, pay to play basically. So we came back and I think we offered 2 million, right? So I think it's 50, yeah, 50 K high, right? And so we offered 2 million and then we raised the earnest money to two and a half percent. And then we also said um, at least half that would be hard after a shorter due diligence period or something. So that was more attractive. And that helped us win the deal, except with us three being in our early 20s, you know, like say, you know, uh, you know, 21, 22, 24, or whatever at the time. And we hadn't done this this big of a, a, a deal in their eyes. They're like, well, how did, they're not closures in our eyes yet. Right. So that's when, um, you know, the buddy who initially emailed that to me, uh, betted, uh, to the broker said, Hey, look, they, they'll close this. They'll be good. So it circles back again to relationships. And so those two things was, you know, when, you know, you know, just commit and go and, and give an attractive offer. And two, you know, by having that relationship, I think that was a big part of us getting chosen over the other couple of buyers. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, relationships are so key, especially regardless of what kind of real estate you're buying. Um, but especially as you get larger, you know, those, 
those sellers tend to be more sophisticated. They tend to be a little less responsive to that direct to seller marketing or prospecting. And, uh, you know, the vast majority of those transactions are done through brokers because, you know, no matter how much, no matter how much marketing you're doing, brokers are doing as much, if not more, and they're promising higher prices. So it's, you know, a lot of those deals are going to come through those really effective broker relationships and then in relationships with the investors that are, are buying them, right? You just got to be in that circle. Um, but, you know, as it relates to maybe the, the multis on the smaller side, you know, four to 10 units, or you mentioned that was roughly the range where you're marketing two, four, 10 units, stuff like that. Uh, is the messaging different in that direct mail that you'd send to those owners or those sellers uh, versus maybe the messaging you, you'd include on a, uh, you know, a piece of mail going out to a single family homeowner or something like that? Depending on, yeah, the, the type of the unit or the size of it or whatnot, we would, you know, change it slightly. I can't remember what we exactly put on there. Um, what, what I say when it comes to multi, I think you should be even more personal in, in, in your uh, contact with them, whether that's by a you know, handwritten letter, whether that's by um, a phone call, uh, knocking on their door. Um, whatever it is, I think you want to be more personal to the people with the multis because there's less of them. And I think that's more like single families, of course, you want to be personal too, but you have more of a, uh, you could take more of a shotgun approach because you have more uh, quantity, right? But with multis, there's not as much quantity plus in a market like we are currently in, in 2020, at least for the first half of it so far, you know, it's, it's pretty hot and it's pretty competitive for, for that industry. So you want to stand out. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and when you're sending these, these mailers, are you, are you essentially running those campaigns yourself? Are you outsourcing it to, to folks to do it for you? Uh, maybe as specifically as it related to multifamily, because I, I know you mentioned you, you did do some outsourcing um, when you were doing wholesaling and flipping and, and reaching out to single family owners, but um, are you the ones kind of handling the direct mail campaign to these multifamily owners or is that something you're, you're, you're bringing someone in to do? Uh, so if we did send letters to direct mail, uh, it was probably half and half where we would run it through the company and automate it to, you know, quote, look handwritten. And then two, we've also just handwritten ourselves sometimes if they're bigger or um, we just felt like we want to be more personal with it. Uh, and, but the main way we got like our, uh, um, bigger units, so to say is through relationships on the broker scale, uh, through bankers, through other investors who knew people selling and, uh, you know, maybe a different meetups, just trying to like chat with people and as people know you're in the game and then things start kind of getting, you know, shown to you. Uh, so that, that's kind of how we got the we're on the street about the, the units, uh, the, the, the bigger units. Uh, but we did at one time, uh, there was a 20 unit that was on our horizon, the one that we were going to buy. And, uh, there was another wholesaler. I think it was, uh, one of my partners, it's my brother, Hunter, uh, was communicating with his other wholesaler and the wholesaler just was having really poor communication was trying to throw like a, a massive fee on top and not disclosing a lot of things to us, which I don't care what, you know, people make or anything. We just need communication. We need to go schedule to see it and all this or whatnot. And, um, you know, so he kept, uh, uh, you know, um, what would I say? Not communicating well. And I don't know all the, all the details and we didn't, you know, want to, 
you know, if he had a contract and, you know, he was the one who initially found it and all this stuff, we want to make sure he's compensating and stuff, but ended up not working out that way. But, um, down the road, um, we were just driving around and we're like, you know what, let's just, let's just white page that 20 unit again. And, uh, that wasn't my idea. There's either Hunter or uh, the other guy, Peter. And, um, they white page and he picked up, I got the first call and they went out that day to go look at it and then made an offer and it ended up working out. And nice. bought, yeah, so it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, that comes from being in the, in the circle, right. In the know. um, you know, if you didn't have that connection with that wholesaler, that that's not an opportunity that comes across your desk and, and inevitably, you know, having it fall through is not, maybe not great in the moment, but that offers an opportunity in the, you know, later down the road. So that's great. Um, so I'd like to talk about that 35 unit that you did, uh, that you structured with a, with a joint venture. Um, you know, you mentioned that you and two of your partners were more or less the the general partners, for lack of a better term, in that deal, the ones running the deal and finding it and, you know, raising the capital, everything like that. Um, but you raised 550 grand or so from uh, other investors. You know, what is that, what does that structure look like within the JV? You know, how are those investors compensated? Um, and, and, you know, what, are the, what is their role in the deal, uh, I guess, outside of just being kind of limited? Um, you know, is it, is it mainly just a GPLP kind of relationship or is they, their involvement something other than that? Yeah, it, it was basically, you know, GPLP relationship where, you know, we communicate with them, you know, um, a decent amount, but we were the ones who were doing more all the day to day and running operations, making decisions, all that stuff. And the way it was set up is the investors, which we also put money in and we were treated the exact same way, right? Our upside was just you know, over here, separate in that little GP pool or the manager or sponsor pool. So we had it set up. Um, we did a six prep, uh, which a lot of people will do, you know, an eight prep, but they'll do eight prep and then they'll do a catch up till, you know, say 10 or 11%. So then say a deal returns 11% on cash flow. Eight, first eight goes to the investors and the other three would go to the uh, sponsors. Uh, the way we did it was six prep, but then we split 50 50. So it would work out very similar in the big picture, right? Um, but we wanted to have a little bit lower prep because we didn't think we'd have as much cash flow the first year or two um, as we were doing a bunch of the renovations and CapEx and stuff. So we thought that would be um, a better route to go with it. So that's what we did. And uh, on, a, on a sale, we structured it to where if they had not averaged 12% a year, a simple you know, annual return, then we would catch them up to 12% a year. Uh, so say they, um, say uh, the cash flow on average every year was, uh, what would it be? Um, 12% total. Then we would say 6% to them initially on their prep. Then we have another six that we could, you know, split. So be three, another three to them. So they're at nine and then three to us, which would be our, you know, 3% cash flow. So now they're still lagging at 3%, right? So we catch that up, say it was three years, we catch up three, three, and three. So we give them another, um, you know, 9% off whatever they invested. And then after they've hit that 12, we'd split everything 50-50 uh, once we did a 1% capital transaction fee um, on either the refinance amount or the sale amount. In this case, we sold it. So uh, we caught them up to 12. We took a 1%, you know, capital transaction disposition fee, and then we split everything 50-50. I think they ended up with high 30s to almost 40% return in the 14-month period, which ended up you know, working really well. So 
Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, and the fact that you can do that in a you know in a joint venture, um, which is so much easier to set up than like a syndication or some more uh, legally binding or not legally binding, but just more legally intensive structure um, is great. You know, and do you know off the top of your head? Um, you know, obviously during a joint venture, when you're setting these deals up, right, you got to put together an operating agreement for the LLC, and, and there are legal costs. Do you, do you happen to know off the top of your head what what those costs you know ended up being? Because uh, you know it's one of those things where it's cool to compare that to how much it costs to put a syndication together and realize that that might just be a better option, especially on you know on smaller deals. Yeah. So if we would have had you know like ten investors, twelve investors, or the deal was like four or five million plus, I would have said we probably need to go the syndication route and do all the regulatory documents and stuff. But since this was a smaller deal and since we, you know, dotted our I's and crossed our T's by not having a syndication attorney, but having our attorneys work in detail and have different clauses in there and, and kind of reading the laws and um, write it in there to where it's mapped out to where if something were to happen, they're like, hey, no, these guys really set it up, you know, the best they could with, with what they were given, you know. And, uh, so we were like, Hey, you know, our attorneys were okay to sign off on it. And if they were okay to do that and we're like, Hey, you know, we'll proceed. But basically we weren't, you know, soliciting people we didn't know. There are already relationships we, you know, established pretty firmly. Um, so that's why we weren't, we weren't worried about it at all. But if you're raising money, you know, publicly out there, uh, and it's people you don't know at all, then I would say, Hey, that's a gray area and you need to you know, you need, you need to probably step back in line or get the uh, regulatory documents going. Now, disclaimer, I'm not an attorney, so I'm not giving any advice here, but this is just, you know, from, from what I understand so far. Uh, as for the cost, I think it was 15-ish, 1,000 to 20,000. The reason that, so I guess that was what, one and a half, um, you know, uh, one to uh, 0.75 to 1%. You know, so we kind of rolled that in a closing cost, right? But part of the reason it was higher was because we were kind of doing some um, of our documents from scratch that we now reuse those documents and other deals we did, right? So now the costs are spread out. So we didn't throw all the costs on that specific entity. We actually paid some out of our, you know, personal entities because we were going to be reusing it. Um, so the first time I said it would be higher. Um, and then after that, you know, I would say it, it, it wouldn't be as much, you know, like maybe it's, you know, five grand or 7,500 or whatever, depending on the situation. Um, but once again, if you're doing a you know $10 million deal and you're having 15 passive investors, then I would, I would look to talk to a syndication attorney or get much more legal advice and that scenario, um, at, at that point. But if you like, just have a, like five buddies were coming up with a few million then i mean just do a joint venture like that's not it's not a problem yeah and, and obviously huge disclaimer right neither harper or i is an attorney so all of this stuff is you go go talk to an attorney but in general right the premise here is that oftentimes you know doing a joint venture um yeah like you're like what you're saying right harper it's going to be more expensive the first time you put those documents together but even that first time, it's probably going to be less expensive than setting up a formalized syndication. And if I think people just get uh, are intrigued by the concept of syndication, right? And they and like they forget that there are other structures to to put together to take down a deal. And if it's just you and a partner, maybe you know run the deal as the GPs, and you have 
you know, a few people that are going to invest, you don't, you probably don't need that, that headache. If you all know each other, you know, like we're saying, and obviously you run this by the, the attorneys, but, um, but it's good to know that that's a better option, especially for deals that are, that are smaller in size in terms of the purchase price. Cause there's a certain scale where if you're going to do a syndication, the purchase price has to be large enough to kind of justify putting together all those deals and you, ha- and you need to have enough investors to justify doing that. So it's a good thing to keep in you know the back of your head that there are easier ways to put something together. Um, so that's great. Um, you know, and I want to talk about something that you mentioned as well, when you were discussing that, that 35 units specifically, um, where you're talking about how, you know, the broker had a little bit of a problem with the fact that, you know, you guys were three younger guys, you know, 21, 22, 24, I, I believe is what you said as, as how old you guys were at the time. And that's definitely a young age to be doing a 35 unit deal and raising money and, and actually putting a deal like that together. Um, you know, so maybe, maybe that's the only time, maybe there are other times where you face some challenges being a younger guy in real estate, you know, negotiating, uh, larger deals and getting in front of sellers and, and, and actually trying to grow this, um, you know, has age been something that's, you know, held you back isn't the right word, but you know, how has being a younger guy maybe affected your ability to kind of run your business and grow it? Yeah, I, I say it's all in your head. I think that, you know, you're out there, you know, on the phone, negotiating, whatever. I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I mean, maybe it hinders you some. And I used to think that it, it hindered us more. Um, but I don't, I don't see it uh, being as much as an obstacle um, itself as, as your mind is. And if in your head you believe it doesn't matter, and then I know I can do this, I'm, I'm confident, then, you know, you're not going to, that obstacle is going to be uh, diminished greatly. But there are still instances like talking to a bank, well, we're like, well, we don't want the investors to sign on that $1.5 million loan. And they're like, well, you know, what's your guys' net worth and collateral to be able to guarantee this loan? right alongside the asset because like you guys are you know obviously really young and never had a you know loan around this size right so that once again came back down to relationship we were introduced to a banker here locally and he ended up you know going back and forth and we got you know pretty good terms but to be able to get that term i think we probably took a little bit higher interest rate and didn't get as sweet of uh, financing so to say but it worked out because we didn't want the investors to sign you know, full enjoying on that loan. And, and uh, we ended up getting what we were looking for. Uh, so I'd say instances like that are a tougher. But once again, once we did that deal, and they started trusting us, I they, they could care less. They could care less. Yeah, the experience. No, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and, uh, and track records always going to trump age, no matter how old you are, right? I mean, if you're doing deals and you're proving that you know what you're doing and you're making money and you're making deals, you're, you know, that all of that is going to trump how old you are. But you're right. Usually the obstacle is with lending because, you know, lenders always want some kind of, I mean, they obviously look for track record, but they look for hard numbers um, over previous years to kind of gauge how you'll be able to perform in the future. So if you start growing quickly, similar to what you were doing, right? Where you know, you, you started buying multis and you jump up to a 35 unit. Uh, yeah, the bank's going to look at probably your two years most prior experience, what your liquidity looks like, what your actual, you know, 
current financial position looks like. And that's when it becomes more troublesome. And that even happens on the smaller scale, right? If you're buying a three unit and you want to go refinance into, you know, some kind of longer term fixed rate mortgage, you know, what do your tax returns look like? And if you're 22 years old or 23 years old and you haven't, you know, maybe you're just finishing up college or maybe you've only worked somewhere for a year, that's, that's going to be where the sales pitch is, is more challenging because it's more of a, a clear cut box. Um, so, I mean, that's something to keep in mind, but in general, like you're saying, right, age is, age is not really that big of a hindrance in the industry. Um, and I'm sure, you know, in your position, when you were out talking to sellers, you must have heard from so many of these older sellers, like, you know, like, hey, you remind me of uh, of myself when I was younger. Um, and it almost like I find that it's like a, as a benefit um, when you're out there because people want to work with folks that are earlier in their career. I don't know if that's something you found or not, but I think that's like an important thing to keep in mind. <clears throat> Yeah, I actually uh, found it to be a a benefit a lot of the time, not only with sellers when they can relate to you and you talk to them, but uh, with you know other investors. You know, they they a lot of people want to help out younger people and people that are trying to hustle and work hard and make something for themselves, right? And same thing with uh, you know just people in general, right? So that or just another partner you could have, you know, on a deal. Say you get, you know, a developer around town or a multifamily around owner around town or whatever. And you're just like, hey, how can I help you out? And maybe you bring them a deal or two and you're like, hey, would you ever be open to partnering? Or would you ever be open to um, you know, help me take down this deal or whatever it is, you know? And once you kind of build those relationships and 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 you get within uh, a community or a circle or uh whatnot, then you've kind of broken in to where Hey, you know, could you introduce me to this guy? And you're instantly vetted to that guy, right? So then you've kind of broken the wall from it being kind of like a cold call to it being, you know, a warm, a warm welcome. Yeah. No, that's that's all great. Um, you so you mentioned earlier in the show, uh, or maybe it was before we even hit record, but um, I can't remember. It was at some point that that you've been selling off some of your properties, I believe, right? <clears throat> Is is there is there a reason for that? Um, is that some is that a strategical um, decision that you guys are making within your business, or is that more of a, a you know kind of a commentary on what you feel about the market as a whole? You know whether it's the you know the real estate market in general, or maybe the or as it relates to you know Knoxville. Um, basically, long answer or long question, but you know how is there a reason that you guys are deciding to liquidate some of the properties in your portfolio? Yeah, sure. So there's a uh, a handful of reasons. Um, first off, I'll always be in real estate, you know, long-term, but, you know, real estate as with a bunch of assets, you know, going different cycles. Right. And from my perspective, I, I, I saw that, you know, interest rates are very historically low and, uh, you know, those are inverse with, um, uh, property values. Right. And, um, you know, coincide with cap rates at least to an extent. Right. So, Say, you know, there's eight cap, right, on a multifamily and interest rates are, you know, 5%, right? Well, if interest rates are 3%, well, to get the same return, you know, maybe you could buy that a seven and a half cap or seven cap or whatever, right? So that's kind of where I'm, where I'm going with it. I'm like, well, if interest rates are so low, I said, well, what if interest rates go the other way? I was like, well, you know, depending on your strategy, you know, some people say, who care, I'm holding long term or how, how they bought the deal or whatnot. Um, maybe it doesn't matter, but the, the way I started looking at it is, well, you know, if you look at it historically, I believe interest rates will, you know, go up 
maybe over the next few years or something, um, which can be good and bad depending on the situation you're in. Now, if it was just us three partners owning all these rentals, we'd probably just try to refi to, you know, Fannie or Freddie and some of them, or uh, just refinance in general um, or sell or go back into the market or whatever that is. But since we had investors, you know, we need to think of them first. And a lot of people I talk to in multifamily space, and there's nothing wrong with this, haven't done an A to Z transaction. They acquire, 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 but they haven't exited. And so I thought A to Z transaction is also good for, you know, credibility, track record, right? And then also uh, looking at the returns, right? We can go ahead and and return 60% on this deal approximately or whatever. Um, Then if we held it five years, what's the worst case, what's best case, and what would those numbers look like? Well, it would be diminishing returns, right? And uh, it's like, what's the risk reward there? You know, so they, that's kind of where we're looking and we're saying we settled on, you know, a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. And we said, look, as long as we can get around this number, we'd sell. And we ended up selling the 35 for uh, 2.65 million. So we ended up, you know, working, working pretty good. And same with other two properties, we ended up, you know, doing pretty decent on, on those as well. So uh, hopefully that answers uh, what you were asking. No, it absolutely does. And, uh, it's funny because I'm in a similar position right now where a partner and I own a building in our market. Um, and we, we bought it at, you know, 475 and we think that, uh, when we were done repositioning it, it could be worth, you know, low to mid sixes, six hundreds. And, uh, right now the market, you know, where we invest has just been on absolute fire. Um, like the most competitive that it's ever been since we've been in the business. And, um, you know, we're maybe, 25% 25% of the way through our like value add program, like just really just getting started on it. And we could probably sell for mid to high fives and deliver a good return to the investors in that deal. Um, so we're, we're, we're thinking uh, along a similar line, right? Where, you know, do we take a bird in the hand or do we kind of, do we want to, you know, take a longer time horizon on this and try and actually achieve those numbers? And, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough decision, right? We're like literally in the process of making that. Um, so it's good to hear, you know, your thought process. And I think it's important to think about that right now. If you're in a deal, uh, especially one where maybe you're looking at 18 months, two years to, uh, you know, maybe turn it around and really execute your business plan at the app, you know, to, to the, to the absolute, uh, nines, I guess is the, you know, a way to put it, but maybe it makes sense to kind of take your chips off the table right now. Um, so, th- I mean, that's all good to think about. And I, I really like what you said too about um, about taking a transaction A to Z and actually building that credibility. And I think that oftentimes we think about these decisions as purely financial, but there are other motivating factors in deciding, you know, whether to sell a property or or even buy right now. Maybe you you're just getting into real estate and you need to you want to buy a couple more properties right now so that your track record's a little bit more built up um, for when the market tanks. It makes it easier to buy when you have a track record and the market's down. Um, so I think it's good that you're thinking about those things, you know, is, would you agree that that is something that should be considered, right? Maybe you think that the market is high right now and you can kind of cash in on some of these properties and achieve those returns. You know, if you were someone in, in an inverse position and you were looking to get into the business, um, you know, or, or scale their business into these larger multifamily deals, how, how would you approach that scenario? Um, you know, given kind of the, the, the thoughts that you have about where we're at in the market. Unless you can get 
um, a really solid deal. Now, this is my opinion and perspective. Then I, I say, you know, sideline it, you know, just, just, just be patient. You got to think, you know, a few different things, right? We've been in a, a massive bull run with the real estate and, you know, people saying real estate will never go down and, uh, you know, price, um, are crazy. I mean, there's always, you know, ebbs and flows right now. I think multifamily will hold up very well. Um, but real estate as a whole, well, multifamily, depending on where you're at, these big cities, it's, it's already getting hammered. Uh, but because of COVID and, and people moving these big cities because they don't want all the mandates, regulations, taxes, et cetera. But let's say, uh, uh, what, was I gonna, what was my point I was going to make? One second. Yeah, we're okay. talking about if you were newer right now and trying to build a, yeah, you know, yeah. trying to get into the business. <clears throat> yeah, so, okay. So the more liquidity in the market, the you know, easier and more liquid to ask to this is to trade right so like right now real estate is fair, fairly liquid right you know you can trade in and out of it relatively quickly um but you got to look at where's all the capital coming from well it's coming through from uh, uh the banking system right so what happens if banks tighten up on their liquidity for various reasons um and a few of those reasons could be unrelated to multifamily. it could be related to other assets so maybe the oil and gas industry or other bankruptcies that uh, are here have come or are coming this year due to uh, a lot of uh, companies being very highly leveraged um, you know so shutting down for a month or a few months or low business you know destroys them and they're, they're done right so with that wave you know there's a domino effect it's also intertwined that if banks start taking hits or they start getting nervous because they need to be more conservative with their lending well, well now maybe it's you know twice as hard or three times as hard to get uh, a lender on a property, which means you know supply and unique demand, and that price of your property, which maybe you can sell at six, maybe you can only sell it five fifty or five seventy five or whatever. So I, I think it's something you need to take into consideration, right? And once again, that's my opinion and perspective. But if you can get a good deal and you get good financing. And, and, and it's overall like you have a good exit plan no matter what, then I say, hey, you know, you know go for it. I, I don't see why not. Uh, me, me personally, unless I can get um, like a, a pretty, pretty good deal, I don't want to be holding uh, assets unless it's a good seller finance deal um, and, and the terms. Like I'll, I'll pay market, but I got to have, have the right terms and the and the seller financing there. Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, that those are always good rules to follow no matter where we're at in the market, right? You know, buy, buy a solid deal, get really good financing and plan for, you know, a scenario in which over the course of owning the asset, the, the market will change. Um, you know, cause we're in a spot right now where, you know, the unemployment match is going to dry up at the end of the month uh, or at the end of July, you know, we're recording this in July by the time it's released, you know, it might already be, you know, that might have already stopped. Um, you know, that is keeping a lot of people's rent paid. Um, I don't know what's going to, you know, neither of us know what's going to happen when that, when that stops, but rent collections will probably dip by, you know, some percentage and, uh, that affects prices of multifamily. It affects the lendability of multifamily. 
Um, and all of that stuff is, is going to, you know, manifest itself in some change in the marketplace. You know, again, it's impossible to really tell, but it's more likely than ever that there is going to be some, some adjustment in the marketplace. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned seller financing. You know, we were talking before the show about a deal that you just did, um, that was mainly seller financed. And it seems like a really interesting one. So why don't we talk about that? You know, you gave me the, the spark notes on it, but let's, let's talk about it a little bit more in depth. Um, and I'll kind of just let you walk us through what that property is and how you put it together. Yeah, sure. So, uh, back last fall, so fall of 2019, um, uh, we had, uh, you know, still were doing some wholesaling at the time and, uh, we had had a letter go out, guy called in, I think I took it, um, right as he called in, it was all live. So I didn't have to call him back. Yeah, I would talk, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes, great conversation. And it was a commercial building. And I don't know if we mailed about that commercial building on accident or it was a house he owned and then he brought up the commercial building. But uh, either way, it was a commercial building uh, close to downtown Knoxville. And there was a billboard right by the interstate too, which I found was, was pretty cool. So it was an awesome property, like a little office warehouse with a little fenced in area. And then that double side billboard um, that was just bringing in, you know, uh, cash flow, right? So he says, hey, well, you know, I'd be interested in selling this. It was, the building is probably worth three to 350-ish, depending. It's kind of hard to price that stuff sometimes. And he got, I don't know, I'd probably want 250. So I'm like, great, that's a great start. You know, it looks like he just wants some cash. He's owned it for, for a long time. Um, you know, I, I think we can maybe make something work. So I'm like, well, you know, could I come see it? And then you know, I can get back with you and we can talk further. He goes, well, no, I, you know, I don't want to sell that. I'm like, well, why'd you talk to me for 30 minutes? He goes, well, if I sell that, I want to sell everything I own. And so he built up a portfolio of maybe it's 13 different parcels. He had like an eight-unit apartment, 10-unit apartment, four single families, triplex, uh, four modular houses on permanent foundation on, on a parcel. A commercial building with an apartment and then two commercial buildings and then a billboard. I believe that's everything. Uh, maybe another house too. But anyways, as we were going back and forth and talking, uh, he was in Florida, um, you know, and then his uh, um, um, uh, wife was in uh, Knoxville. I believe they were having um, a few personal things going on, you know, Maybe we're going to you know, get a divorce or whatever. None of my business, but they were needing to uh, liquidate. Um, and uh, so as I was talking to him, he was you know, motivated, but it's, they didn't have to sell. You know, they could have sold them off one by one. They could have held them, could have refinanced, whatever. But they were like, it would just be cleanest if we could just get cash, right, and just go from there. So, or um, basically, more so than the cash, is they cared more about the income they got every month. Because he mentioned the whole portfolio. He's like, well, I want, you know, say $2 million. And I'm like, well, I don't think I knew that price. I think that's um, at or, or a little bit above, really a little bit above market. Maybe market was like one eight, one eight five, maybe. And uh, he was wanting like two. So I'm like, well, uh, you know, I won't be able to do that. And we're going back and forth. I, was, I really need to be closer to one five. He didn't like that at all. He didn't want to budge. And he slowly budged a little bit until we were at the point of, um, I think it was like one point, um, 
1.65, I think is where we're around or 1.7, something like that. And, uh, um, anyways, I, I, numbers still didn't make sense cash. So we just kept going back and forth and I said, well, um, you know, you're focused on the income stream. What if I just pay you the income you're making now? Cause the rents were super low. I mean, they're like one bed, one bath apartments and one was written. Water was included with the tenant, 380 bucks. I mean, and I just, I, well, we had to renovate one a little bit and one wasn't even fully renovated and we just leased it for 700. So that shows you that spread, that difference there. Right. Jeez. So I knew that the numbers there he was getting, and since he had no mortgage or something, you know, they were just pocketing all that. I was like, well, what number? You know, I really want, say, six grand or seven grand a month. I'm like, well, if I could get it up to bring in 15,000, 16,000, you know, it's a little tight. But if I put, say, nothing down and I'm paying a six grand a month, you know, three to you, three to your wife, uh, over X amount of time till it's paid off. And he was, he was like, okay, that may work. I was like, that would have been sweet. You know, <laughs> that would have been awesome. Uh, but then his attorney advised him, uh, I need more skin in the game. Uh, so I said, okay, you know, you got a reasonable attorney there. Um, <laughs> so I ended up uh, going back and forth. And I think the final deal was uh, uh, 850K. Um, they would hold as seller note. And then they would get 850,000 uh, up front at a down payment. You're like, well, why would you put 50% down? Right. Well, you know, because I, I guess walked around for hours upon hours trying to get creative and figure it out because everyone was telling me there's no deal here. The numbers are too high. It just doesn't make sense. Last time we did a portfolio, you know, we made half what we thought, you know, X, Y, and Z. And so I said, okay, so, you know, if you want that price, you know, you just got to work me on terms. That's all I ask. So we ended up structuring it to where I only need to keep 115% of uh, the 850,000 is collateral, right? So maybe that was, um, uh, you know, like a million something or whatever. Uh, but anything else that we closed on that, um, as long as the assets there equated to that value that we agreed to in the exhibit A value or whatever, then if I had any other assets, I could partially release them and sell them off, right? So what we did is at closing, we assigned off, the uh, eight unit for 300, the commercial building for 265, and the other uh, commercial building for like 35K, it was just old warehouse. And so that gave us, you know, say, you know, 600-ish or something, 650, 700, whatever the number is. So now we don't have to bring as much to the table, right? Um, and I bought it with two other partners I do insurance with. And so we brought it to the table 275, we each bought about 100, you know, or 92,000 or whatever. And then, you know, we paid off, um, you know, my other partners that was in the entity, right? And uh, structure all that at closing. So now, basically, we, we had to inject 275. We still have um, over a million in assets there or 21 units right now. And um, we're just kind of letting that ride and get it stabilized. Uh, I, I went into much more detail and it'd be much more clean. And I could send you a, a link. It's on our YouTube channel and a podcast I did on it. So if you want to put that in the show notes. If someone's interested in looking at all the details, I actually go through a, a spreadsheet uh, on the YouTube video and, and go in detail. So that would probably be um, a better way to go about it because it's about 30, 45 minutes I dive into it. Yeah, I know. I'll definitely put that in the show notes because I mean, that's that structure is just something that I personally have never even heard of, right? Where you have seller financing and 
you only need to collateralize it up to a certain dollar amount. So, and, you know, that gives you the freedom to assign off other deals, which, you know, frees up some cash to bring to the table. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts there and that's a really interesting structure. And, um, for anyone out there who's looking to buy a portfolio, maybe that's something to keep in mind. Um, you know, you, you can buy some pieces of the portfolio and either sell or sign off other pieces. And if you have seller financing, you know, maybe that's a structure you can use where, you know, the collateral for that seller financing is just a portion of that portfolio. So you have the freedom to do and make some of those decisions. Um, yeah, I'll definitely include that in the show notes. And, you know, if you, if you talked about another podcast too, I can include that as well. Um, cause that seems like a really interesting deal. And, you know, if, if you're new to seller financing, um, it's probably like just a masterclass on, on, you know, how to even just structure deals like that. So that's great. So, so the end result here is you, um, you still have 21 of those units and there's, you're still turning them around, stabilizing them and, and everything like that. Correct. Yeah. I mean, we're getting, uh, you know, pretty close to being pretty stabilized and we'll probably do an update on that same YouTube channel. Hey, here's how it's looking. Here's how it's performing. And look, we've assigned off another asset or two, and here's what we're doing for the foreseeable future. Uh, but when it comes to that seller note specifically, I'll bring up a few more things. And like I said, I go into more detail if you want to you know, watch that, uh, that webinar. But on the seller note, say they were uh, you know, financing the 850. Well, you know, after I did more due diligence, we really needed a, a credit, but they didn't want to come off the price. They're so stuck on the price. So I said, fine. I'll give you the um, money and I have a credit, but you got to finance that as well. So they finance another 100K in a second position, uh, totally unsecured to any of the collateral and um, not personal guarantee anything. In fact, none of it was personal guaranteed. It's all non-recourse. Uh, all I got to do, pay them four grand a month until it's paid off and then 20K a year for the 100K one at the end of every 12 months. Zero percent interest, no balloon, um, so every payment I have is hundred percent principal wow. uh, and in the collateral value we agreed on, like we fixed up the 10 unit collateral value is 375. We're about to get it appraised. It'll probably appraise around 50 a door. if not more. So say 500 K that gives another 125 K room on the exhibit a to now I sign off another asset or two, right? So we're going to sign off one more single family and we're going to hold the rest. So we'll end up holding 20. But that'll enable us to take another 60, 70, 80 grand, plop it in the operating account, or do a distribution back to three of us uh, pro rata, right? So that, that was a pretty cool setup. I'll also dive into how we did a buy-sell agreements on the three partners with uh, insurance policies and how we're going to store our um, uh, cash reserves and uh, operating income. Before we send it out, we'll send it and we'll store it in our cash value and our life insurance contracts. So there, there's pretty cool. There's a pretty cool setup we did. Um, and really it just came down to just thinking a lot over dozens, dozens of hours. But, um, you know, th those are fun. Like those deals to me are just, just a lot of fun. Th those are. Yeah. So was the seller like sophisticated enough to, to kind of keep up with you on this or was this like, did you kind of have to bring him along with you as you started putting this together? Well, we had uh, attorneys involved on both sides, you know, okay. the whole time. So start off LOI. Once it said, hey, this looks good, I, for the actual uh, seller finance loan terms, I put stuff in there, but I also left it vague. So during the due diligence phase, so we didn't have to agree on stuff immediately. And after due diligence or during it, we'd negotiate some more. And that's what we did and then signed off on it at that point. So you don't want to overwhelm 
at the start is kind of one step at a time, yeah. right? Type thing. Uh, but you know, after talking with him, I mean, once I explained it, you know, he started getting more of a feel for it. And, uh, then, uh, attorney, you know, checking stuff over mine too. And everything, you know, is looking good. And we also got, I think 120 day close, which, which was nice. And I never met the guy. I never met him. I only talked to him on the phone. Wow. <laughs> That's a hell of a story. It's told me the whole portfolio. Now I met his wife and, uh, um, uh, their kids, um, their kids run a drywall company here. Uh, that has been around since like the fifties or sixties. So, I mean, this guy was this owner, he's sophisticated, you know, like he's still sharp in, in mind. It's not like he's losing his thinking or anything. Yeah. And we had, and frankly, had great conversations. We just, what happened was I didn't try to get what I want. I focused on what he wanted and ended up structuring around that. He wanted the income every month. He wanted some cash up front right after the attorney advised him and a few other things. And that's what I focused on. And that's, that's it. And I mean, to this day, which I guess only been like four or five months or whatever, you know, I'll call them once a month or text whoever and we're all on, we're all on great terms. And you know, they love getting their checks every month and it works well. And I, once I finish up doing the collateral and stuff, fixing it up, I'm going to send them videos and pictures and update them. Say here, here, look, I poured in, you know, 7,500 K back into your properties, the renter up, here's the updated leases, fix all the deferred maintenance. Let me know if you have any more questions. I want to keep them updated. I want to communicate with them, you know, because they're, they're the bank. They're my bank. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's an unbelievable story and a ton to take away from that. If you're trying to do a seller finance deal, you're trying to just creatively put a deal together. Right. And the key is, right. You're fo you focused on what he wanted um, and developed a structure that really just makes it a win for him and a win for you, you know, incidentally, um, but that's the mindset you have to have when you're putting those deals together with a seller, you know, where there's multiple properties or a seller who's extremely stuck on price, you know, that's okay. Price isn't the only thing in a real estate deal, right? There's more moving parts than just the price. Um, one more thing, a, mm -hmm. one more thing I'd chime in and say too, is since it was 13 different parcels, we didn't have to knock one off because there was a, a title issue. So it said 12 parcels. We knew what we were assigning off or double closing off, you know, um, before we had finished closing. So, so what I did is you got to allocate a purchase price to each property, right? But you kind of have flexibility to, you know, do whatever you want. And our exhibit A value and actual purchase price to the properties were separate um, because it didn't really matter. Um, um, I just had to allocate for accounting reasons, uh, purchase price that whatever the actual value is doesn't matter. You know, I put the book value down, but anyways, um, the purchase price I would put higher now within reason, like I would make it, you know, like you'd say, Hey, this 10 unit 375. Well, I probably could have put 425 or I probably could have 350 and it would have been reasonable. Like if there's an audit or something, hey, that'd be within reasonable numbers or whatever, right? I just got to spread it out. Yeah. So on the commercial building with a billboard, you know, we had just allocated up front 350. You know, it's like, it seems like it's probably worth more like 325, 350. I'll put 350 on there. So when we assigned it off for 265, we took a paper loss, right, of you know what, 75K. So on our taxes this year, we have 75K to offset just because we allocated that, that price higher on that asset we signed off. 
So just by thinking like that, because other stuff we're holding long term, well, we who cares? Like maybe we'd have less capital gains on that later on. But if we're holding that 10, 15, 20 years, you know, I'd rather take the tax benefit now, right? So I was trying to think ahead. And once again, no accountant here, right? But but the the concept of it is, I mean, like that's unbelievable, right? So just to think about how that's a win for you in terms of in the moment in your financials, being able to close that deal. And it's also a huge win on come tax time. I mean, that's, that's, you want to talk about rare <laughs> getting a win-win between making money and paying taxes. That doesn't really happen too much. So, and then we uh, took a, uh, that commercial building with billboard and we had it scheduled to close with an, another guy in town. And then he started being a real pain to deal with like a week before closing. And so we just said, screw it. And you know, me and the other two partners, Peter and Hunter, right? It's not the ones who took it down and, and the entity, but the people that um, over here, Peter and Hunter, we just took that down all cash between us and just listed it. And then we ended up making um, uh, another 50K out of that. So the deal ended up working out much better than originally expected. Um, so that, that was a fun one. I, re- I really, really liked that one. And I think, you know, it's not like I'm some super smart guy. I'm an average, average guy here. I just, you know, got the spreadsheet, was thinking and got the sellers what they wanted and just kept thinking, you know, how, how can I make this better? How can I structure it? How can I have different clauses in there to, to do stuff? Um, so, yeah. yeah, that's unbelievable. And I'm sure while you were doing this and having conversations with the seller, you know, before you guys agreed on a structure, price, whatever, right, you're still while you're thinking about this and coming up with the structure, you're developing rapport. So, you know, that seller is becoming more and more invested in working with you because you guys are investing time in each other. So it's, you know, while you're doing all this, you're probably, you know, increasing the likelihood that he's going to be more willing to work with your terms and your price because he's putting time into, you know, into solving this problem. Um, Which is great as well. A whole nother side effect to you in a seller financing deal or something that's creatively structured is, you're getting buy-in from whoever's on the other side of the deal, which is always mm-hmm. an underrated piece of it. Um, so we're, we're coming up here on a, on a little over an hour and I want to, I want to make sure I ask you these last couple of questions before you got to take off. Um, but I asked these last two to every guest. Um, the first one is, is just real general. Uh, you know, what are you looking to do in your business over the next uh, six to 12 months? You know, what are some of your short-term goals? I would say six to 12 months. Um, you know, finish up getting this portfolio stabilized of the 2021 units. We have a 20 unit we're selling, so I'd like to get that. We're about to, you know, get that under contract uh, to sell. I'd like to get that sold. Um, and then personally, I, I just want to stack up more capital um, and, and wait to go back in when I find, find a uh, um, good deal to do. For me, I think that I want to go in, you know, 50, 75, 100, 200 unit or maybe a, a triple net building or something, go bigger. So I'm going to take time to stack up more so that I can go in bigger. Uh, and I think that aligns with, with my perspective on, I think there'll be uh, some deals that'll come up, uh, motivated sellers and people getting in liquidity crunches over the next few years is what I personally believe. So I think it would probably time well if, if I had cash and everyone else's leverage, which there's nothing wrong with that if you're leveraging smart, but if I have more cash, then you know deals will will be coming to me, and things like this. You could be like, oh, I heard something in Chattanooga or something in Tennessee. This deal, and you call me up, right? Just from the relationships of talking. So I, I'm I'm looking at stuff all the time, but I'm, you know, I'm I'm much more patient. 
and I've allocated a lot of my time to uh, uh, intern stuff. Um, and that also comes to uh, building a lot of relationships through there. Um, so um, basically just trying to, like I said, stack up capital, um, you know, re-educate myself. Uh, honestly, half my day is just thinking. I'll walk around and think a lot and brainstorm and uh, try to like put different stuff together, or connect different people, uh, things like that. So um, I probably should go back to the drawing board and like actually have it all written down. But that's that's me kind of, you know, brainstorming where, where I'm at. No, that's great. And, um, you know, if, if you're someone in the Tennessee area uh, who's doing those deals, I mean, connect with Harper, right? I mean, you can, you can put a deal together. So um, so that's great. And uh, last question before I let you go, if you were starting your business over again, you know, we're rewinding a few years here, um, you know, assuming what you know now, uh, what would you do differently, if anything? Uh, do one thing, get really damn good at it, and then uh, build processes and systems so you can scale. That, that's what I would do. Uh, and then uh, two, this is not necessarily as business related. That goes more personal as well. But when income's coming, flowing through, allocate however you want to do it, maybe 10% to emergency fund, 10% to a risky play if you're playing the stock market or want to do options or do something risky or whatever that is, 20%, 30% to living, 50 to investing, however you want to allocate, have it hit a bank account, like your little bookkeeping bank account, and then separate it to wherever your other bank accounts are, right? So then every time you say, I just don't touch that, I don't touch that, I don't touch that, here, I'll invest this, I'll invest this, I'll invest this, or however you want to you know, set it up. I would have I would have tracked the flow of money better uh, that was coming in and out. Um, I would have done that up front, and um, I would have uh, stuck to one thing and and built more a uh, process system, make it scalable, get real, real good at it. And um, I'd rather I make a couple hundred here and you know a couple hundred here or whatever. I'd rather make you know a million here or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's great advice. Um, you know, the, one of the best things you can do when you're starting is just become really good at, you know, one segment of the real estate business. Um, because that's just going to make your pathway to a paycheck and a deal so much, so much easier than becoming just mediocre or, you know, decently good at a number of things. So some great advice there. Uh, I mean, I really appreciate your time. Uh, this has been a great episode and if, um, if people want to connect with you, uh, where can they do so? Yeah. So I, What's the best way? You put my contact information in, in the show notes, but I, I will. Yeah. Yeah. I, Harper A. Jones at gmail.com, uh, you know, would, would be a good email. I probably don't want to give my cell phone number out, but if you email me, <laughs> then I'll call you. That's a, yeah. that's a good step. But um, website, I have my domain. I just haven't built the website. And since we, after we sell this 20 unit, we'll be closing down our um, uh, other entity named Aerodor. Um, I don't want to give out those numbers either because maybe by the time this is launched, that's not even up anymore. So, gotcha. I mean, I'll put your, uh, you know, your Instagram, um, that, Oh, LinkedIn would be good too. We put that all in the show notes. That's what we'll do. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do that. So just take a peek in the show notes if you want to connect with Harper, but again, really appreciate the time. And, um, this has been a great episode. Yeah, no, definitely.
to the Multifamily Wealth Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. See you next time.